Welcome to the show. This is Gregory Conti, and I'm here with my colleague from the National Justice Party, Warren Balog. And the topic of our discussion today is Hitler's foreign policy. So we're going to be going off of a book that both of us have read called Hitler, a Global Biography by Brendan Sims. And there's a whole bunch of theses that Sims comes at you with in this book about Hitler's foreign policy and about how it's different from what people sort of expect it is and what the the conventional narrative about it is that I found really interesting. And sort of a caveat before we get into it more is that this book, it is written by a liberal academic, but for the most part, it's completely readable. I mean, there's maybe a few spots where you're, you have to roll your eyes at some, some comment about some stupid, uh, you know, editorializing, but for the most part, it's just clean, straightforward history. So the, the three main things that, that Sims talks about in here are that Hitler feared the Anglo-American power more than Soviet power, and all of his political decisions and, and military decisions up to the very end were more concerned with Anglo-America and the influence of international capital, which, whose seat is Anglo-America, and not influenced or less influenced by, by the Soviet Union and, and concern about the uh, geopolitical and military power of the Soviet Union. The other two theses are that Hitler actually did not think that the Germans were a master race. The, the term he used was Herrenvolk, and he mainly used it to talk about the British aristocracy, so a, a lord people. Of course, it's mistranslated as master race to give you a sort of, you know, I guess they could have called it a, a Meisterrasse in German, but they didn't call it that. But it's, of course, translated that way to give you a, a negative idea. And then the third thing, that, which is sort of a corollary to the second, Hitler thought Germans were weak and that they were not as uh, racially strong as the Anglo-Americans. And so the, the corollary to that is that Germany needed to do positive eugenics to breed the Germans into a better race and to also cut back on emigration. So there's a few other things in here too, but so Warren, what's your take on, on this overall? I mean, do you think I, you, I mean, I know you agree more or less with the, with the book and you thought it was a, a very good book, but you had a, some differences with it. Yes. I, so I read this book and I finished it in March of 2020 and I wrote a, an article for national hyphen justice at the time about it that I think was. Yeah, it was published on April 20th, 2020, so it was like on the anniversary of Hitler's birth. I, I wrote this uh, article. It was like a review of the book. And the main part of it that I focused on was Hitler's anti-capitalism, which this is something that is— uh, It goes hand-in-hand hand with the anti-Anglo-American thing. Right, and uh, it's something that it really needs to be emphasized. It's— and I'll go through some of the points because I pulled out of it. Obviously, I, it's been now two years since I read the book, so I'm a little fuzzy on some of the stuff. I have my notes here for it. But I felt that that was one of the strongest points of the book was talking about Hitler's anti-capitalist legacy. I felt that it was correct in placing his strategic emphasis, his long-term strategic emphasis on the, on the threat posed by really the United States in, in the long term. I think that Hitler absolutely recognized that, and it's something that you see. There's a couple of other books that I'm going to discuss that we can even pull some quotes from that will, that will fit into that. I think that his idea about that Hitler thought of the Germans as like a secondary, like a lower people somehow than the, than the British or the Americans, I think that he overestimates that and he cherry-picks quotes. I also think that he 
underplay he downplays Hitler's appraisal of the Soviet Union as a threat. So he makes it like, oh, Hitler didn't think that these guys were actually a threat. He underestimated them. I don't think he did at all. If you look at his final speech that he ever gave publicly on the 30th of January, 1945, he doesn't even, I don't think he even mentions Anglo-America. It's all about the threat posed by Asiatic Bolshevism. And, and I don't think that you can I don't think that you can say that Hitler's wasn't his the driving force of his life was not like anti-Marxism. <laughs> I mean, like his his January 30th speech, his original January 30th speech in 1933. It's like basically my life is dedicated to destroying Marxism. So I don't I well, think but he, that, but he makes the dis- I mean Sims makes a distinction between Marxism and the Soviet Union. He does. Yeah, yes. Yes. He sees and, uh, Marxism as a he did see Marxism as a relatively big threat. Yes. I think that Sims, though, uh, yeah, like what I'm, what I'm saying is I think he overplays that the Germans or that Hitler had like an inferiority complex. But, yeah, okay. But I think the all the rest of the book is is solid and is stuff that no one talks about or not enough academics talk about it. So it's good that he did it. I, I think also in general the book is well, great because look. it's a political biography. And, and so most biographies of Hitler are like, oh, yeah, you know, he, he – uh, had this niece that he had a crush on, and then she killed herself, and like this and that, it's this, and his, this stupid his, psychological. Yeah, it's like, like so. Fake maybe he was gay. He had a thing with Ernst Rome, and oh, he had no personality. He had no sense of humor. That's all the mainline Hitler biographers. The worst offender of all is Ian Kershaw, as as far as just making him like an unperson or a non-person. It's a biography that doesn't actually get into biography like yeah Hitler was a political man he was a politician and he had p- very strongly held political views and it's funny because it's coming back to me as, as I'm talking another point that well, he let's, does let's not rush ahead okay uh, all right okay because yeah, I, I on the Soviet Union thing I want yeah. to say the I, I had always approached the World War II question regarding the Soviet Union as that the Soviet Union's power and influence in the war is underestimated and I think that, I still think that's true in the West that you have this sort of narrative in, in uh, Western media and Western history that the Soviet Union was like a sideshow and the real war was going on in North Africa and in Sicily. Right. And that's in a way it's ridiculous because the Soviet Union was just throwing way more troops, way more tanks at the Germans and was tying down way more German troops, way more divisions, um, more in, in some ways more materiel. And they certainly, the Soviet Union ha- had to uh, undergo a, a huge, like, moral. They had to do summon up a, a crusade against uh, Germany in order to not be destroyed. And I think the Soviet Union's moral power in rallying its it, the Russians and uh, the you know their allied or vassalized peoples to fight against Germany is is a uh, historic feat, which Anglo America would not have been capable of on anything near that level. No. Uh, and I think Hitler would have agreed with with me on that. But this book is great because it it sort of corrects that. I mean, I, I think I may have overestimated how much power was being and how much danger the Soviet Union posed to Germany, because Sims talks about how much um, industrial power was being devoted toward the manufacture of U-boats versus airplanes and or tanks, actually, specifically, right. because, yeah, Germany had the material to manufacture way more tanks than they were. They were just putting it into U-boats right. because Hitler thought we need we absolutely need to nullify the Allies' advantage in their supply um, or their ability to supply England right. and to supply North Africa, the bridgeheads in France, whatever. There were some other things, too. We thought the, uh, as far as liberalism versus communism, uh, Sims talks about how he thought that 
Hitler thought that liberalism was actually more of a danger to the German people than communism, especially in the final stages of the war, because liberalism had the ability to seduce the Germans to think that things would be fine if they just surrendered to the Anglo-Americans. Right. And you sort of he was proven correct or uh, by the July 20th plot, where you had these officers who were sympathetic to Western liberalism who tried to overthrow the German government. Yeah, there's a couple of... Um there's a couple of things here that uh, are really. <laughs> it starts out with the, the idea that he underestimated the United States at first, and then it was after a certain point. Like this is something that a number of people have talked about. That in Mein Kampf, the United States is really it's discussed, but it's not discussed in as like this really big potential rival that Hitler had a view of the United States that it was maybe more. There's this famous quote that I don't even know if it's real, but where it's like the U.S. is half nigrified and half Judaized. And, and, and it's something yeah, He that, says the same thing about France, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, there, well, it's a quote <laughs> that a lot of people like to bandy it about as like showing that Hitler underestimated the United States. And then there's also people, I've seen it, in the white nationalist movement spread around as sort of like, well, this was Hitler's judgment on the United States. But in fact, there's far more that he says about the United States that are verifiable quotes where he's actually saying that the U.S. is really, really formidable. And he, one speak, of, he speaks of their industrial capacity and their, their racial quality. Yeah, the racial quality is the big one. Uh, Hitler talks about the U.S. not as in terms of a... Um, mongrel bastardized population of Europeans. He he actually views the US as the most industrious. He his survival of the fittest kind of worldview comes into it. He sees the US as a selected group that were selected for the the ability to strike out the pioneer spirit, the the courageous spirit, the right. will, he's to, actually, will he's, to conquer new he, land. He's actually more of a boomer Republican than boomer Republicans. <laughs> yeah, in that sense, <laughs> it's funny because he sees the U.S. as, as being uh, really made up of a very dynamic racial element. He was very impressed by the, in, the scientific inventions coming out of the U.S. He always emphasizes the ratio of land to population because that was, was looming large in his mind and that that gave the U.S. an enormous strategic advantage. He admired the U.S. in a lot of ways. Uh, he didn't admire the capitalism of the United States and the crass like lack of culture. But I think Hitler kind of took the view that a people who are just settled and stay in the same villages that they've stayed in for thousands of years and never strike out to conquer new territory those people are going to be more timid and weaker than a people who actually are descended from conquerors and explorers and and settlers and people who just left everything behind to, to stake out a new life. Like he, he, Hitler really aggressively thought that that was the way to, I mean, he thought that kind of, I misspoke, he thought that that sort of aggressiveness was really admirable and really strong. And also with this whole thing of his view of the United States, he uh, he thought that the United States was dangerous because of how thoroughly controlled by Jews and Jewish money and Jewish finance that it was, and particularly Hollywood. And so his view of the U.S. seems to have changed sometime between when he wrote Mein Kampf and when he wrote his second book, which it's Sims... 1928, right? Yeah, yeah, Sims draws a lot on that, and I think Hitler's second book, it's, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's an unpublished 
second volume that's mainly just on foreign policy. He actually starts out talking about a very specific question, which is the South Tyrol question with Italy. And it's just like Hitler to, you know, his opponents were accusing him of being unscrupulous because they're saying, okay, well, you're siding with Mussolini and Italy and fascism because you like them uh, against your own people in the South Tyrol. And so German nationalists who were not Nazis were like, ah, see, you're, you're betraying your own people. No, he had a much, he, he was looking at, he was looking at the European like chessboard and thought, okay, we need to ally with Italy because we're not France hates us. That's that's out of the question. That's not happening. Right. And we need Italy is useful because it opposes France. It has some naval power in the Mediterranean. It gives us some access to North Africa. I'm not sure what he thought about Italy vis-a-vis Britain, like that those two would be necessarily rivals because of how Italian naval power would be a threat to Brit- the British uh, control of the Mediterranean, the Suez. Right. But I mean, with the South Tyrol question, he basically his point was that. Germans living in this little province, South Tyrol, that was after the Versailles Treaty or after the Saint-Germain Treaty given to Italy, that those people, like it is not a racial, it's not a problem for the German race to have an agreement with the Italians to move this one, to to change the border or keep the border as it is, and then to just move these Germans out and let the Italians resettle it. Um, Because it's such a small amount of people you're talking about. Germany's real, like, land interest is not fighting with the Italians over a little piece of land in the the Alps. It's pushing east. That's the only way you're going to compete with the Americans is to have, like, sort of a a German equivalent to American uh, Western Lebensraum in the east, it only makes sense. Right. I mean, if you're if you're a German in the mid 20th century, that is Hitler. The, what I love about Hitler's foreign policy and, and the, the second book is just how ruthlessly logical and common sense it is. Oh, yeah. Hitler hated he hated prestige campaigns, for instance, like, for instance, the, the, the taking of Moscow was something that a lot of his generals wanted to do. And it was really it was sort of a, the glory of, of taking the enemy capital. And it's just very typical of Hitler. It's his famous, very controversial decision to redirect yeah. the center group down to Ukraine to and, and Kiev. And, and circle and, and, that huge group circle, of Russians. Right, and, yeah. which there's a number of books on that, that that for decades that was dismissed as Hitler's big blunder that cost him World War II. And that came mostly from these former West German uh, now generals who were saying, well, I told the Fuhrer that that's what we needed to do, and when he didn't do it, that's when the war yeah, was on. Yeah, but I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, that decision was completely in line with the stated objective of the German military, which was to annihilate the Red Army and not to take territory. Right, and and it also, so there's been a whole, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there's been a whole slew of books, and uh, I just got one. David Glantz was the one historian who, in the, he's an American military historian who cracked open the Soviet archives and was reading what the Soviet internal decisions were and what the, where, where they thought the threats were, what their strategies were. In other words, he got away from just taking the word of these, like, Junker generals that we had wrote these memoirs after the war saying why if if Hitler had listened to them we they would have won the war and uh, there's another book called the first soldier that's about Hitler as war leader his military mm-hmm. decisions and him in the first world war but there's basically been a massive reappraisal of Hitler's wartime military decisions that have essentially said that he was correct. I mean, they still criticize his late late in the war military decisions. Uh, his which, like, which Sims doesn't criticize. Sims doesn't because Sims correctly takes Hitler's view as being this Clausewitz kind of that war is a political 
uh, it's a political battle first and foremost. So he's he's viewing it not as a military historian, but as a political historian, and he's seeing it that Hitler's looking at the politics of the war, that that's the big ultimate, that's what sets the objectives, and that's what defines how things go. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off the thing there, but to to you said about Hitler's ruthlessly like logical approach to things, uh, that was very much the case with war. Hitler was not someone to wage the you know to to risk the lives of his soldiers on prestige on basically this general can say he took this city. It, it's all based on this. We need these materials to fuel this. We need this land yeah, to yeah. do this. He's it's, like playing it like a video game. Yeah, it's super 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 pragmatic. And uh, anyway, so his second book starts out talking about this very uh, obscure and and totally like irrelevant to anybody in the world today, even in Germans, uh, this question of the South Tyrol. But then he, he uses that to expand on his whole theory of foreign policy, which is like really his whole theory of the rise of nations and civilizations and how they, how they butt heads. And uh, in this book, he really, really, really strongly uh, emphasizes the the power of what he calls the American Union, the United States, and the danger that this will pose in the long term and what the strategic long-term strengths of that are. And uh, that was the other thing I was going to say, Greg, is that he uh, – I was showing you that book, um, Hitler's American Model. But the, the other thing that he admired about the USA and that now you have a lot of like um, – critical race theory types who want to show how the U.S. has been racist and evil from the beginning love to point out correctly that the Nazis took a lot of inspiration for their racial laws, the Nuremberg laws and and so on, from the U.S. racial laws that were already in place and the racial thinking that was very popular in the United States at that time. So, yes, that's a major point of the book. And Sims is absolutely right to put the emphasis there. So, I mean, the the basic... I want to keep talking about um, Hitler's foreign policy and the, the, the Zweites book, just because the main thesis of it is that Germany needs, it needs to have Lebensraum in the East. It needs to have space to have a bigger population, because only if Germany has a population on par with the United States can it hope to compete with the U.S. in industry and, in, and therefore in world influence. And the other, you know, because the other option is for Germany to be totally crushed by Anglo-American power and and between Anglo-American power and Soviet power. And this is Hitler's model. I mean, that basic idea of getting Lebensraum and increasing the German population, kind of having a, a second modern politically controlled Volker Wanderung, like the, the, the way the Germanic tribes expanded into the Roman Empire. Uh, this would almost be like a, a modern day version of that, except that all the people are kept under under the political control of the Reich. That's contrasted with the other ideas of how Europe should be run, which is Clergy's idea and the idea that was popular with popular with the sort of the old Habsburg remnants like Otto Habsburg and with the uh, the liberal elites in, in America and Britain and France who wanted to have just a sort of a weak union of European states and that that could like somehow be a world power. I mean, the fund like the fundamental difference between Kalergi's idea of how a world empire or uh, how Europe could be united and how Hitler how Hitler thought it could be done is Kalergi thought you could just put a bunch of people together and have alliances and have just a, a bureaucratic superstructure. Or as Hitler laughed at this, I mean, he called he thought Kalergi was an idiot, 
and thought that the only way to do it, and I, of course, agree with Hitler, is that you have to have one nation that is totally dominant and is running the, the whole uh, continent as an empire. Here's a, a book that everyone should, you don't have to read this whole thing, but you should, it's one of the smarter books about the Third Reich and the history of the Third Reich. Now, this was written, Brendan Sims' book was written in 2020. It's very recent. This one was written in the Bush years, I think like 2008 maybe or, or around then. Um, but it's by Adam Tooze and it's called The Wages of Destruction. And this is uh, the making and breaking of the Nazi economy. And it's a big economic history of the Third Reich. And Sims mentions this book and draws a lot yeah. on the conclusions of this book. And I, it's right in the little uh, <laughs> the dust cover flap. I can read the what the description of the book is. And this is sort of his big overarching thesis. And Sims draws on this. It says that the idea that Nazi Germany was an unstoppable juggernaut backed by an efficient, highly industrialized economy has been central to all accounts of World War II. But what if this was not the case? What if the war had its roots in Germany's weakness, not its strength? This is the radical argument in this pathbreaking book, the first account of the Nazi era for the 21st century in our globalized world. There was no aspect of Nazi power untouched by economics, yet Adam Tooze is the first to place economics alongside race and politics at the heart of the story of the Third Reich. And America, in Tooze's view, is the true pivot for Hitler's epic challenge to a shift in the world order. Hitler intuitively understood how Germany's relative poverty in the 1930s was the result not just of global depression, but also of Germany's limited resources. He predicted the dawning of a globalized world in which Europe would be crushed by America's overwhelming power, against which he saw only one last chance, a German superstate dominating Europe. Doing what Europeans had done for three centuries, he sought to carve out an imperial hinterland through one last land grab to the east, to give him the self-sufficiency to prevail in the coming superpower competition. With the odds stacked against him, he launched his under-resourced armies on their unprecedented and ultimately futile rampage across Europe. And then he says that, Hitler knew by the summer of 1939 that his efforts to prepare for a long war with the West were doomed to failure. Ideology drove him forward. Hitler became convinced that Jewish elements in Washington, London, and Paris were circling round him, and from 1938, the international Jewish question was synonymous with America in his mind. Even in the summer of 1940, at the moment of Germany's greatest triumphs, Hitler was still haunted by the looming threat of Anglo-American air and sea power orchestrated by, he believed, the world Jewish conspiracy. This... That basic idea, I think, is correct. I mean, I, the basic f thing that he's putting forward there, I believe, is correct. I, I think yeah, that, I mean. <laughs> and 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 he says that he starts out. Adam too starts out by saying that people have interpreted Hitler's decisions during the war as being ideologically motivated. That he decided to attack the Soviet Union because he hated Bolshevism, or. Or they'll say that yeah, you know right. he thought that Slavs were inhuman and and were were not were not even human beings or were subhuman or something and that the Germans it was a racial war between Aryan Germanic peoples and inferior Slavs. In a way, I think that's sort of correct. I mean, it's it's a uh, I think Hitler thought it was a a racial war between German German Western Europeans and Slavs. 
I, I think that that even that though. Well, because I, I mean, there were certainly Slavs that were yeah, incorporated I think that's, I on think the that's, German I side. Think that, I think that that is largely wrong. I think if you look at uh, now, Hermann Goering was interviewed at the Nuremberg trials, uh, or shortly before the Nuremberg trials, and they, he was asked directly, "Why did Hitler attack the Soviet Union?" Was it political, strategic? Was it was it ideological? Was it racial? And he says it was. We thought we were going to be attacked. Like he lists these things, like these strategic things that were going on at the time. That he's like, we had to strike first because sooner or later, uh, this thing was going to move against us. And we we if if we attack first, we stand a better chance of winning. He also it's funny because the one <laughs> the one secret recording that was ever made of Hitler in conversation. No, with uh, Mannerheim. With Mannerheim. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. The, he's the, talking the finish, about... Uh, prime Minister, President. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there's this... There's this. It's it's the only recording you will ever hear of Hitler's voice in normal conversation where he's not giving a speech. And uh, it's actually been studied by actors who want to try to, like, the one in Downfall. Yeah, yeah. To, 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 to want to master Hitler's conversational speech. What's interesting, though, is the content of what he's saying. He's saying basically how when they when they attacked the Soviet Union, they found all these tanks, these giant like tank factories. They had like they destroyed more tanks in the first in like the opening couple of months than they thought that the Soviet Union had altogether. And what a giant colossal threat this was. And it really all was set in motion after uh, Molotov proposed these. He hit them with these proposals to do with Romania and everything else that would have basically. The Soviets would have taken control of the resources that Germany was using to power its war efforts. Right, so, but it was—it was certainly, even if it was, even if the Operation Barbarossa was decided on on basic on uh, strategic military reasons, like we have to attack now, something like that would have had to have happened eventually for Germany to secure Lebensraum, according to Hitler's basic. Well, that's the interesting thing, pieces, is right? That, I mean, is, well, that's the interesting thing is that. Because you couldn't, I mean, I, I guess I you could politically like slowly work your way into Eastern Europe and resettle people, I, I suppose, in a, a peaceful way. <laughs> Hitler was very, I, I will say this, Hitler was very, very flexible when it came to his foreign policy. So even though he had these big themes that sort of dominate his whole life and career, one that might come as a surprise to many people that I think Brendan Sims talks about it, but I've read other people talk about it is Poland. So Poland is an area that is right in Germany's backyard. The Germans have had a long history of conflict with the Poles and with Poland. It's a major, major flashpoint of German-Slavic racial tension or ethnic tension. And Poland in the 1930s was in possession of huge stretches of German territory when Poland had been recreated by the Allies after the end of World War I, and Poland was the cause of World War II. So you would think that Poland would be the first target of Hitler's drive to Lebensraum, that he would want to take over Poland, kick the Poles out, resettle it with Germans. And there, you know, there are plans that Heinrich Himmler had and things to, to that effect to certain parts of Poland once they, once they beat Poland in right. the war. What's surprising, though, when you read about it, and I think Sims talks about this, you'll have to refresh my memory because it's been two years, is that Hitler actually was seeking alliance with Poland against Soviet Russia for much of the 1930s. He wanted to work closely with Poland, and the Marshal uh, Pilsudski, Pilsudski yeah. yeah, Hitler totally respected and actually wanted a, to form an anti-Bolshevik front with Poland against Soviet Russia. So I mean, but you don't think... 
I mean, you don't think that he wasn't his long term view on Poland wasn't something like he had in mind for like Bohemia, where it was a, a Slavic a, a Slavic group that could be incorporated into sort of a, a bigger German Reich. Possibly, but I think that, like I said, if you yeah, because in the long term, if you need that, if you want that Lebensraum, like Poland is the main thing in the way. I mean, the other your other options are like push around south of Poland, like into into Moravia and or into Romania or down into the Balkans. I mean, you you don't really have a lot of places to go if you're German and you're trying to get living space. It's true, but at the same time, uh, I think that all this was informed by Hitler's view of the threats that Germany faced and that Europe faced as a whole on the larger scale. So in other words, if you had a nationalist in Russia, or if you even had a guy like Putin in Russia, would Hitler have been bent on the same war that he was so, so much of his career was spent preparing for and then, and then driving towards? I don't think so, actually. I think that Hitler, if, if there had been some sort of nationalist regime in, in Russia, I think Hitler would have been fine with with forming a block with that against the United States. And similarly, I think that... I mean, so he did actually for a brief time with Molotov von Ribbentrop. Yeah, yeah. And and I think also that had the United States not been Jew-controlled, in other words, because you got to be careful with some of this stuff. It's like, okay, well, Hitler, uh, how do we as white nationalists, why should we care then about the views of a man whose number one thing that he thought was a threat was other white powers at the time? So like the United States. But... This is where the, I, the, uh, the Jewish element is so central. And this is what I was getting ready to say about uh, twos. I just want to mention this. He starts out by saying that it's totally wrong to think that Hitler attacked the Soviet Union because of either political reasons like, oh, I, I, you know, I disagree with their political viewpoint and we've got to go kill the Bolsheviks, or racial reasons like, like we Germans have to finally subjugate the Slavs. He's saying... It's like 90% economic, strategic, like we need land and resources to fend off this larger challenge. And this huge looming colossus is a major threat to us. But he doesn't, he, so he says that most historians get the role of ideology wrong in why Hitler did this. But he says where ideology comes into play, though, is his sense of urgency, like why he would choose to attack and when he did. And then he blames it on, he says that Hitler had this ideological view of the United States as controlled by Jews. So, A shocking opinion. Well, listen to what he says. This is really, this is just this one passage, because I want to get your thoughts on this, on this, Greg. And this is a huge, uh, Sims's book almost is is just drawing on this basic idea that uh, this guy did. He says, what strikes one today as the defining feature of 20th century economic history is not the peculiar dominance of Germany or any other European country, but the eclipse of the old continent by a sequence of new economic powers, above all the United States. In 1870, at the time of German national unification, the population of the United States and Germany was roughly equal, and the total output of America, despite its enormous abundance of land and resources, was only one-third larger than that of Germany. Just before the outbreak of World War I, so what, that's 40 40 years later, 44 years later, the American economy had expanded to roughly twice the size of that of Imperial Germany. By 1943, before the aerial bombardment had hit top gear, total American output was almost four times that of the Third Reich. We start the 21st century, therefore, with an altered historical perception from that which framed narratives of German history for most of the last hundred years. 
On the one hand, we have a sharpened appreciation of the truly exceptional position of the United States within the modern global economy. On the other hand, the common European experience of convergence provides us with a distinctly disenchanted perspective on Germany's economic history. The basic and possibly most radical contention of this book is that these interrelated shifts in our historical perception require a reframing of the history of the Third Reich, a reframing which has the disturbing effect both of rendering the history of Nazism more intelligible, indeed eerily contemporary, and at the same time bringing into even sharper relief its fundamental ideological irrationality. So here's where he's saying that the ideological thing was the Jew hate. So he says... Economic history throws new light both on the motives for Hitler's aggression and on the reasons why it failed and why it indeed was bound to fail. So he's one of these British like. So he's he's saying that everything Hitler did makes sense except for hating Jews. Right, and that that's ultimately that, that's the only reason. So, yeah. so, but yeah. if you if you agree with Hitler that that Jews are powerful, then everything Hitler did makes sense. Right. So 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 get this. In both respects, America should provide the pivot for our understanding of the Third Reich. In seeking to explain the urgency of Hitler's aggression, historians have underestimated his acute awareness of the threat posed to Germany, along with the rest of the European powers, by the emergence of the United States as the dominant global superpower. On the basis of contemporary economic trends, Hitler predicted already in the 1920s that the European powers had only a few more years to organize themselves against this inevitability. Furthermore, Hitler understood the overwhelming attraction already exerted on Europeans by America's affluent consumer lifestyle, an attraction whose force we can appreciate more vividly, giving our sharpened awareness of the more generally transitional status of the European economies in the interwar period. As in many semi-peripheral economies today, the German population in the 1930s was already thoroughly immersed in the commodity world of Hollywood, but at the same time many millions of people lived three or four to a room without indoor bathrooms or access to electricity. Motor vehicles, radios, and other accoutrements of the modern living, such as electrical household appliances, were the aspiration of the social elite. The originality of National Socialism was that rather than meekly accepting a place for Germany within a global economic order dominated by the affluent English-speaking countries, Hitler sought to mobilize the pent-up frustrations of his population to mount an epic challenge to this order. Repeating what Europeans had done across the globe over the previous three centuries, Germany would carve out its own imperial hinterland by one last great land grab in the East. It would create the self-sufficient basis both for domestic affluence and the platform necessary to prevail in the coming superpower competition with the United States. So he's saying, this is all rational. The aggression of Hitler's regime can thus be rationalized as an intelligible response to the tensions stirred up by the uneven development of global capitalism, tensions that are, of course, still with us today. But at the same time, an understanding of the economic fundamentals also serves to sharpen our appreciation of the profound irrationality of Hitler's project. As this book will show... Hitler's regime after 1933 undertook a truly remarkable campaign of economic mobilization. The armaments program of the Third Reich was the largest transfer of resources ever undertaken by a capitalist state in peacetime. Nevertheless, Hitler was powerless to alter the underlying balance of economic and military force. The German economy was simply not strong enough to create the military force necessary to overwhelm all its European neighbors, including both Britain and the Soviet Union, let alone the United States. Well, Though, I mean, it's like 
Arguably. <laughs> Arguably. Though I mean, Hitler, that's how it played out, right. but it, though, it, it though need Hitler, not have played out that way. Though Hitler scored brilliant short-term successes in 1936 and 38, the diplomacy of the Third Reich failed to bring about the anti-Soviet alliance proposed in Mein Kampf. Faced with a war against Britain and France, Hitler was forced at the last moment to resort to an opportunistic arrangement with Stalin. The devastating effectiveness of the Panzer forces, the deus ex machina of the early years of the war, certainly did not form the basis for strategy in advance of summer of 1940 since it came as a surprise even to German leadership. And though the victories of the German army in 1940 and 1941 were undoubtedly spectacular, they were inconclusive. We are thus left with the truly vertiginous conclusion that Hitler went to war in September 1939 without any coherent plan as to how to actually defeat the British Empire, his major antagonist. So here he comes to it. Why did Hitler take this epic gamble? This surely is the fundamental question. Even if the conquest of living space can be rationalized as an act of imperialism, even if the Third Reich can be credited with a remarkable effort to muster its resources for combat, even if Germany's soldiers fought brilliantly, Hitler's conduct of the war involved risks so great that they defy rationalization in terms of pragmatic self-interest. And it is with this question that we reconnect to mainstream historiography and its insistence on the importance of ideology. It was ideology which provided Hitler with the lens through which he understood the international balance of power and the unfolding of the increasingly globalized struggle that began in Europe with the Spanish Civil War in the summer of 1936. In Hitler's mind, the threat posed to the Third Reich by the United States was not just that of a conventional superpower rivalry. The threat was existential and bound up with Hitler's abiding fear of the world Jewish conspiracy, manifested in the shape of Wall Street Jewry and the Jewish media of the United States. And he puts those in quotes. It was this fantastical interpretation of the real balance of power that gave Hitler's decision-making its volatile risk-taking quality. Germany could not simply settle, as almost a... Germany could not simply settle down to become an affluent satellite of the United States, as had seemed to be the destiny of the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, because this would result in enslavement to the world Jewish conspiracy and ultimately race death. Obviously. Given the pervasive influence of the Jews, as revealed by the mounting international tension of the late 1930s, a prosperous future of capitalist partnership with the Western powers was simply impossible. War was inevitable. The question was not if, but when. Isn't that fascinating? So he's basically crediting Hitler with he was right about everything except the Jews, which that's a whole separate. Yeah. Yeah. I would mm, add to that. You know, the, the sort of the central thing in, in foreign policy in general that I think a lot of people don't t account for is I think there's necessarily going to be a you, you necessarily will have a war if there's two powers of roughly similar strength in the same area. So the idea of Germany and England, for instance, allying doesn't make any sense, or the the or at least in the long term. Uh, I mean, we're, I mean, I'm assuming Germany, England of like the early 20th century, not not Germany, England today, which are just vassals, vassals of America. And it's sort of the same thing with like Germany and Russia. If you have a strong country and you have competing interests, you might be able to get along for a while. But if eventually one regime or the other is going to degenerate and is going to have some need for a foreign policy adventure. And so you're necessarily going to come into conflict. And I think Hitler was assuming that and a lot of the, and, and the other reason, not just the ideology for why Hitler chose war with 
Britain and America to the extent that he chose. I mean, it was forced on him in a way too. Yeah. But the reason that he chose to go when he did, I think also is just the, the classic German calculation on war that was put upon them by history and their geographical position, which is you have to attack first yes. and break the enemy before they can muster all the resources to destroy you. And this is, a, this is not only Germany, but it's also Japan and Italy very strongly like the, what he says there about the, the 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 our perception of germany as this big industrial juggernaut that has these invincible armies and then they decide to just invade everybody um that's a propaganda myth you know it's very much uh and it's and it's just it's so ingrained in our culture for everything from like star wars yeah to yeah Empire i mean look, star look wars at, to, so you just gotta look just, at the map like uh of 1939 you know the little tiny germany little tiny italy and little japan and then you've got uh, the French Empire, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, and America. Right, and and like controlling like half the world's space and all of its oceans. And and it's something that, uh, and I've expanded on this before in other podcasts, but it's something that really um, takes a bit of getting used to, because the, the 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 idea that a country would go to war only if it's a big bad guy country that has a militarized culture and they're and they have no respect for the rights of other people and they just want to take over territory that idea is really um childish it's juvenile it's something right out of comic books it's not how the world actually works the what uh hitler i think it was either hitler or hermann Goering called the league of nations this noble society for the moral defense of former acts of violence and this really was how the Germans viewed the world in the 1930s, is that violence and violating other people's rights is how these empires have built up gigantic territories and colonies and everything. Um, the, every, every one of them. I mean, because that's that's another thing that they talk about is the idea that you can't, that, that, that every people should just revert back to it was theirs originally and and i think the nazis talked about how there's no patch of earth anywhere in the world including like north america before the europeans arrived i mean if you study the history of native american tribes they were constantly conquering each other and driving each other out i mean all, you just have to look at the history of the aztecs and what the aztecs done right had done right when cortez came i mean half of cortez's allies were other i mean he, he, cortez's whole army was mostly not Spanish. It was other tribes in Central America who were joining with him against the Aztecs because the Aztecs were so uh, just brutally expansionist and, and conquering them all and then sacrificing these people in ten, by the tens of thousands. So the idea that the world is not just built up by wars and acts of violence. Now, we can strive for something better than that. We can strive for something higher than that, and Hitler certainly did. I don't want to suggest that Hitler was just a brutal, like, survival of the fittest and, and anything, the ends justify the means, and it's okay to just invade anybody or take their shit because uh, other people have done it in the past. But what Hitler attacked over and over and over again, and you see this in his big speech where he refuted Roosevelt the state, an anti-German statement put out by FDR in the in like early 1939, is he hated the idea of these powers talking about world peace and disarmament and all this when they have built themselves up through violence and when they are not disarming and they're asking much smaller powers that had only unified like right it's, it's the it's the classic uh, 
thing you do when you're Anglo-America or when you're the more powerful uh, geopolitical entity is you provoke an incident and then act like it was provoked by a smaller power to give yourself a, a moral excuse to invade them. I mean, it's like how World War One happened and to a large extent how World War Two happened. Well, there's the great, uh, there was a, a fantastic uh, leftist joke that I love. It's one of my favorite jokes about unionized and non-unionized workers. And it was that there's 10 cookies at the table and there's a CEO, a unionized worker and a non-unionized worker. And the CEO takes eight of the 10 cookies and then he says to the non-unionized worker, he says, watch out for that unionized worker. He's after your cookie. <laughs> and that's that's really like, that's not only true of that sort of capitalist relationship with their workforce, but it's also true of the world powers. I mean, in basically every war of the 20th century, including like Iraq with Kuwait, you know, and Saddam Hussein, it's you'd have the power that comes to the table, takes eight out of the 10 cookies, and then is like, oh, that one is a threat to world peace. They're an aggressor. They're bent on world domination because they want this other cookie. Uh, well, so do you think if if Hitler had been in the situation that he was in in, say, 1939, and all of a sudden you had a American white revolution that threw the Jews out of power in Washington, do you think Hitler would have said, okay, um, yeah, Germany, we're, we're, we'll just be an American vassal. We're fine with uh, an, an American power controlling all of Western Europe and as long as it's not Jew run, like whatever. I think that Hitler would have, I don't think that Hitler would have. Because I mean, that that's the logical implication, right, of this the, the two's thesis. I don't think that Hitler would have pursued rearmament to the extent that he did. And, and I don't think that he would have gotten Germany on a war footing to the extent that he did when he did. Like, I, I, I'd actually, I'm glad you bring that up, Greg, because that's something that makes me, like, I almost want to cry when I think about the potential. If there had been a government in the United States or a president that took a basically pro-German stance in the conflict of the late 1930s that was building between Germany and mainly Britain, right? but France is along for the ride. Yeah. What's, hor what's horrifying to think about is not only that, because I've thought about this, I've thought many times about, about uh, uh, what's his name, um, Lindbergh and his policy and the isolationist so-called, you know, the non-interventionist, that we need to just stay out of European affairs. And I've, I never liked that position because I feel like if you have one side that's saying this is a struggle between absolute evil and absolute good and we have a moral uh, – you know, we are morally required. We have a duty to get involved on the side of the little, you know, the little victim, Great Britain and France against the big, bad, evil, aggressor, global Satan, Germany. If, if that's the one argument, and then on the other hand, you have, well, they're all bad. And uh, we're just going to, like, wash our hands of it and not take a side. I think that the other side. Oh, and that side, would be Lindbergh, Lindbergh's position was they're all bad and we're not going to take a side. Yes, exactly. Um, I think that. You have to sort of counter, and this goes back to the way propaganda works, you have to counter uh, a, a strong position like that with an equally strong position. So the position that America could have taken, and it's funny because from a rational perspective, it makes total sense. America, on a just a purely geopolitical basis, America is not threatened by Germany at all in that period, in right. either the First or the Second World War. A, a, a country in the center of Europe 
it doesn't stand to reason at all that there would be a problem with the United States. The British Empire, on the other hand, certainly could have avoided problems with the Soviet Union. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. By, we wouldn't have had a Cold War. Uh, we might have had a Cold War with Germany, with Amer- American nukes and German nukes. But we certainly wouldn't have had a Cold War with the Soviet Union if you'd had a, a powerful Germany. Right. So if I look at if I look at the way this is, um, if I look at the way that this is, plays out, and really, I mean, that's where the Jews, Jewish foreign policy, you almost have to factor that in because that on a purely, Mike and I were talking about this recently, on a purely like realist foreign policy geopolitical interest basis. The conduct of the United States in both world wars doesn't make any sense at right. all. It only makes it it makes sense. It doesn't make sense for the collective interest of the United States, but it does make interest for the small factions that have power in the United States. Right. So, in other words, in in, in that sense, you could com- you could uh, uh, sort of compare it to uh, maybe like the Catholic Church. Like the Catholic Church is a is an international global organization with its own interests that are sort of supranational, you know, that are above the, the national interests of states and is a major factor, has been historically a major factor in world politics. So it's not like this, This we haven't seen things like this, where right. there's some extra element that's not just a nation state or a, or a fixed empire with a certain, like the Roman Empire with a big, you know, that they have their own material interests. You can have a, a factor in world politics that is above the nations that is international and that is a major factor in world politics that's and the catholic church is not the only example and it's sort of not islam would be another example and right i mean world jewry now yeah world jewry i mean it's just so the point i'm making is that uh if you look at the united states if if there had been a force in the united states that had taken a aggressively pro-german side which again from a realist foreign policy perspective don't forget, we fought two wars against Great Britain in the 19th century. Right. Two separate wars. Well, in the 18th if century. If America stayed true to her principles, we would have um, sought the destruction of the British Empire well, well, when we had just, the chance. And well, even from a from a from a opportunistic geopolitical standpoint, uh, we had the most to gain from going to war with the British Empire. Now, in Stalin's War, which just came out, uh, that author explains how Churchill did kind of just sign away the British Empire to FDR. So you could make a, a sort of realist argument that FDR was was sort of extorting concessions out of Britons. By supporting yeah, but, Britain, he was getting... Yeah, I, I see that. But I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking, this is all making me think of the Suez Crisis, where you had uh, Britain and France uh, in 1956, after World War II, still trying to manage their Middle Eastern Empire, still trying to control the Suez and Nasser uh, nationalizes Suez as he was uh, rightfully allowed to under the existing treaty with Britain, and uh, and then Britain and France team up with Israel to grab the Suez, and then that's where America came finally. Like America asserted itself as a uh, as a colonial power against Britain and France. Only then, ten years after the end of World right. War Two, right, right. So right. like, why didn't we just do it? When we had the chance to smash to smash Britain and France on on the rock of Germany, yes. So, so so here's the thing, from a so again, I'm just going to spin something here. Imagine if you had some sort of aggressive, uh, pro-white, anti-Semitic, national socialist-minded thing, or just a very realist foreign policy uh, America that is not that is is looking at the 
geopolitical realities of our position in the United States. The occasion of World War II, we could have declared war on Great Britain in an alliance with Germany, and we could have seized... We could have, we could have taken Singapore. We could have seized <laughs> Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and all these other, all these other uh, leftover parts of the empire. We could have just taken these away from uh, the, U the UK, uh, the British Isles, and just incorporated Canada into the United well, we, States. Uh, well, forget about those. Like Suez and uh, and Singapore. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. about Australia or Canada, like whatever. But I, mean, I mean, but I mean, if the South Pacific, you see what I'm saying? Like if the, if the Pacific is our backyard and we need to go to war with Japan over the Pacific and there's this inevitable like idea, that, I mean, on some level that makes sense that the U.S. and Japan are on a collision course as, as naval powers in the Pacific. Right. Well, what was where was Japan's Lebensraum? How are they gonna like build, I mean, build I mean, up I enough mean, of a of a base to really threaten America in the long term? I mean, unless they Japan Japanified China, well, uh, and Japan, like a, yes. by by now maybe you'd have like a billion Japanese people, right? But so so here's where it gets. When I was talking about how it's horrifying to even contemplate, here's where you really get into the tragedy. I'm not saying to to anyone who's Australian or Canadian that's listening to this that it would have been better if the U.S. had like suddenly blitzkrieged uh, Canada and Australia or, or New Zealand in in World War II. But I'm just saying from a from a rational foreign policy realist perspective, completely self interested, it would have made sense for the U.S. to ally with Germany against Britain, not with Britain against Germany. It doesn't make any sense. We can't extort anything or take anything from the Germans. They're over there in Central Europe, and they're actually at war with the big naval colonial powers that we are dealing with, which is France and Britain. Anyway, what I was going to say, though, was the, this is the real tragedy of it, is that if the U.S. had made clear its pro-German position in 1939... I don't believe war ever would have broken out between Germany, Britain, and France. I think that the U.S. had the U.S. made it clear to the to Britain that we are we are think we think Germany is within her rights. We respect the the choice of the Germans to elect their own government. They elected Hitler. He's very popular. Uh, we think that the settlement at the end of World War One was not fair. Uh, we think that, and, and that's and, why, they, and we we tried to we try, and you know we could argue we tried to make it fair. Wilson had his fourteen points. You right. subverted them. You we're subverted just, them. We're, we're, we are complying with the fourteen points of the United Nations. Right. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't join the League of Nations. Right. League so of Nations, so yeah. so yeah. So you could say that uh, we think that Germany is within her rights to get back under self determination to get back. Um, the uh, specifically the Polish corridor and Danzig, we think that those people should be allowed to vote on it. We don't agree with a German, uh, you know, aggression against Poland, but we think that this can be settled by re returning the German-speaking parts of Poland back to Germany, and and there's a way we can settle this, or even accept Hitler's proposal of uh, international control over some of these uh, uh, areas. Um, but we could have taken, we could have made that position clear to the British Isles and. And France was just following Britain's lead on this. And had we done it, Britain would not have been able to go to war with Germany. It would have been clear that, because then we could, here's the other thing. We wouldn't have needed to bomb or kill any British people or Canadians or Australians. We could have simply said, 
uh, Britain, if you go to war with Germany, we're going to sanction you. We're going to we're going to stop doing business with you. Essentially, we are going to not deal with you. And had we done that, I think we could have completely avoided World War II, at least in the West. So to answer, to bring this all back to Hitler and his foreign policy, I think Hitler was very much dealing with the constellation of powers as they were, and governments and ideologies as they were in, during his lifetime. The fact that he joined with, aligned with the Soviet Union, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, shows Hitler's extreme ideological flexibility when it came to pursuing his foreign policy objectives. I, I believe that if the United States, to answer your question, if the United States had had a President Huey Long, for instance, and someone who was willing to deal fairly with Germany, I don't think that Hitler would have been on this drive for war. I think that based on my reading of everything that I've read, I think that Hitler felt that way because he felt correctly that Germany was being encircled and that Europe was being encircled and that Europe was going to lose everything unless the Europeans fought back. You know, it's um, another sort of thing that was probably going through Hitler's mind going up to the war is there's a Spangler book called, uh, of course, his famous book is uh, Decline of the West, but there was another book he wrote in the late 20s, I think, called Prussian, uh, Prussianism, was Prussianism, something about, God, I can't think of the name, Pru something Prussianism. Prussianism and socialism? Yeah, Prussianism and socialism. And basically arguing, the, the Spangler's point was that uh, Prussia could be sort of the new Rome. And if you look at Brit uh, Germany and America, they were, those, the, those were the two countries that were in contention to be the next uh, Roman Empire that dominates the Western world. Uh, and, and the default, and after World War I especially, the default answer would be America, um, assuming that Britain was sort of uh, on its way out. And, um, you know, Hitler's basically, he was, he made Germany, he, he threw Germany's hat into the ring so that Germany could be, you know, the next Rome. Uh, and and sort of preserve European civilization against uh, the the decadence that Hitler saw in America and and Britain, and uh, sort of preserve some some element of culture. And there is just no way that America was going to be able to do that. I mean, America hasn't hasn't done that, uh, unfortunately, due to well the the again the thing that he we keep coming back to and Hitler kept coming back to, which was Jewish control of of America. Well, there's a terrific, uh, I have it here. This is exchange of communications between the President of the United States and the Chancellor of the German Reich, April 1939. And basically, FDR wrote this, uh, he released this message, this telegram that he sent to Hitler, April 15, 1939, asking Hitler to promise not to attack the rest of the world. And it was totally just a public relations stunt. Like, he didn't release it even to the Germans. He released it to the world. Should we, like, should we announce, uh, release a similar statement to Israel? Like, please, here, uh, right. assign the statement that you won't attack the rest of the world? Yeah, it was just one of these things where it's like, out of nowhere, you know, FDR, he's reelected. Uh, 
the the if you study because this is another thing there's another book i have um about the german naval war and 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 i have a book about the great depression that shows that the the new deal was failing the new deal was a, was a failure it it it's total myth that the new deal brought america out of the great depression uh any serious economist mainstream economist will tell you it was world war 2 that brought america out of the great depression but the new deal was a failure and it was because, partially because the New Deal was a half-assed attempt to implement, uh, somewhere Hitler called it, I think, a, a, like a pseudo-socialism. I've never been able to find that quote. I read it somewhere, and I, I can't find where I got that from, but it was a great so the, ca- the capitalists are still ripping everybody off. Yes, like, here's, exactly. Here's, here's your shitty little uh, CCC job. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this is a major, major, major thing that I, I, Greg, I would actually like to at least write like an essay on this, if not like a whole book. On the fact that the New Deal f- was a failure, uh, that the the sort of aggressive taking on capitalism that the Germans and the Italians did is what, and particularly Germany, is what got Germany back on its feet. Uh, a point that I often use, and this is one you can use to people that, that still want to tell you that Hitler was a warmonger, you can point out to them, uh, war is what broke and destroyed the German Reich. They solved their problems in peacetime, in peacetime. So from 1933 to 1939, they solved their economic problems domestically. And they brought... Just the by throwing Jews out of positions of authority. Yeah, basically. I mean, I mean, Shocking. they reorganized their economy. They brought themselves out of the Great Depression. Germany had a higher uh, unemployment rate than the United States, significantly higher in during the Depression. Germany was hit by the Depression harder, and Germany had way, way, way fewer resources than America did, which Hitler was never tired of reminding people about. Uh, So Germany, in peacetime, solved its problems, its economic problems. America, in peacetime, failed to solve its economic problems, and it was war that made America the power that it became and that solved America's economic problems. So, again... People want to make it seem like, oh, Hitler is this aggressor, he wanted war, and Roosevelt was a man of peace who just wanted to preserve the peace, but he was forced into war. Well, isn't that funny that the guy that wanted war, that's the big warmonger who wants to take over the world, and war is what destroys everything that he has and everything that he's built, and the guy that just doesn't, he just doesn't want war, he just wants world peace, he just wants everyone to get along, and he he hates war, but he just, by accident, whoops, my war, I just like took over the whole fucking world and now I am like much stronger than I ever was. He was just so good and he like accidentally stumbled into world power. I mean, give me a break. It's such horseshit. But again, it's these basic, basic myths that we have to keep coming back to. And this is why it's so important to broaden our view from just Auschwitz and no gas chambers at Auschwitz. There are so many other like much bigger fundamental myths but what I was going to say was, yeah, this ex- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you were touching that, touching on that in your speech the other day. This, yeah. The main theme of it was just that, right? And and so so this idea that FDR basically Germany's over there solving their economic problems, America is over here. FDR is utterly failing to solve. America is going back deeper into into uh, recession and depression after 1936, and all of a sudden Roosevelt randomly in front of the whole world says to Hitler, like, "Don't hit me, bro." What are you, why are you threatening me? You know, like this or that. Hey, man. Hey, back off. Germany, back off. You know? So Hitler writes this. He gave this. He says to Roosevelt, he's like, since you chose not to speak to me like leader to leader, 
but to release this telegram for the whole world, I'm going to answer you in a major address to the Reichstag. You know, so it's, it's classic like Hitler Hitlerian overkill. Roosevelt's telegram is like three pages long, and Hitler's speech that he gave is like. I don't know, 50 pages long or something. <laughs> but it's a great thing if you can read it in its entirety uh, because he systematically calls out FDR's bullshit and makes the case for Germany's rights. But what I wanted you to hear was how he ends the speech. And this is after, like I said, about, it's not quite 50 pages, it's like 44 pages of Hitler uh, uh, tearing it apart. He says, finally, he says uh, this, he says, Germany lost approximately 3 million square kilometers of territory in and outside Europe. Although the whole German colonial empire, in contrast to the colonies of other nations, was not acquired by means of war, but solely through treaties or purchase. President Wilson solemnly pledged his word that the German colonial claim, like all others, would receive the same just examination. Instead of this, however, the German possessions were given to nations who already have the largest colonial empires in history— while our people were subjected to great cares which are now, as they continue to be in the future, particularly pressing. It would be a noble act if President Franklin Roosevelt were to redeem the promises made by President Woodrow Wilson. This, above all, would be a practical contribution to the moral consolidation of the world and the improvement of its economic conditions. And then he says that, yeah, the Versailles Treaty was just the biggest land grab. Uh, German colonies in Africa and New Guinea, and then also the British and the French divided up the whole Middle East, which is like wasn't even anybody's. Well, I guess it was the Ottoman Empire's colonies. Right, it's, it's right. laughable to be. Oh yeah, we're yeah. just oh, they're just protectorates. We're we're trying to improve their their lives. But I wanna I wanna I wanna present this in terms of this idea of which power is going to be the new Roman Empire and and Hitler because we kind of. We like to think of the Third Reich as having this potential, and I think certainly halfway through the war, and Leon de Grel talks about that, how through the war the SS became this European, this pan-European thing. Uh, I think had they won the war, he, there's no doubt that Germany would have become this, this new empire. But I don't believe that Hitler set out to build that. I don't think that that was his his primary objective. And I think he's being honest well, you, here. You don't he, think he recognized the sort of historical geopolitical necessity of making Germany into that to— a, uh, I think he did— To, to maintain its independence against Anglo-America? I think he did to a point, but I think even that was born of necessity, meaning that I don't think that— the scenario you outlined that if like Germany, if, if you, if America had a really great government that was willing to work with Germany, I don't think Hitler would have been like, but we got to be top dog, you know, oh, so yeah, we yeah, got to yeah. build up our <laughs> army for a top, you know, a, we, we have to have a clash of the Titans here. I don't think Hitler would have done that at all. I, I don't think that was his uh, objective, but he says, so I, I won't read this whole thing, but he goes through in this conclusion, he says, Mr. Roosevelt has also stated in conclusion that the heads of all great governments are in this hour responsible for the fate of humanity and that they cannot fail to hear the prayers of their peoples to be protected from the foreseeable chaos of war. And I, too, would be held accountable for this. Mr. Roosevelt, I fully understand that the vastness of your nation and the immense wealth of your country allows you to feel responsible for the history of the whole world and for the fate of all peoples. My sphere, Mr. President, is considerably smaller and more modest. You have 130 million people on 9,500,000 square kilometers. 
You possess a country with enormous riches, all mineral resources, fertile enough to feed half a billion people and to provide them with every necessity. I took over the leadership of a state which was faced by complete ruin thanks to its trust in the promises of the outside world and to the evil government of its own democratic regime. In this state, there are roughly 140 people to each square kilometer, not 15 as in America. The fertility of our country cannot be compared with that of yours. We lack numerous minerals which nature has bestowed on you in unlimited quantities. And he goes through and talks about all the savings in gold and foreign exchange that were extorted from them, that they lost their colonies. He says, I had in 1933 in my country 7 million unemployed. Uh, Since then, Mr. Roosevelt, I have only been able to fulfill one single task. I cannot feel myself responsible for the fate of the world For this world took no interest in the pitiful fate of my own people. I have regarded myself as called upon by providence to serve my own people alone and to deliver them from their frightful misery. Thus, for the past six and a half years, I have lived day and night for the single task of awakening the powers of my people in face of our desertion by the rest of the world of developing these powers to the utmost and utilizing them for the salvation of our community. And he says, I've conquered chaos, reestablished order, I've done all these things, succeeded in finding work for the, for the reemployment for the 7 million unemployed, and to protect them against threats of the outside world, I have not only united the German people politically, but also rearmed them and gotten rid of the Versailles Treaty. And then he says, he goes through and he says, I've, I've brought back to the Reich the provinces stolen from us in 1919, led back to their native country millions of Germans who were torn away. And he says, and Mr. Roosevelt, I have endeavored to attain all this without bloodshed and without bringing to my people and so to others the misery of war. So this is the end. He says, this I have done, Mr. Roosevelt, though 21 years ago I was an unknown worker and soldier of my people by my own energy and then can therefore claim a place in history among those men who have done the utmost that can be fairly and justly demanded from a single individual. You, Mr. Roosevelt, have an immeasurably easier task in comparison. You became President of the United States in 1933 when I became Chancellor of the Reich. Thus, from the very outset, you became head of one of the largest and wealthiest states in the world. It is your good fortune to have to sustain scarcely 15 people per square kilometer in your country. At your disposal are the most abundant natural resources in the world. Your country is so vast and your fields are so fertile that you can ensure for each individual American at least 10 times more of the good things of life than is possible in Germany. Nature, at least, has given you the opportunity to do so. Although the population of your country is scarcely one-third larger than that of greater Germany, you have more than 15 times as much room, and so you have time and leisure on the same huge scale as you have everything else, to devote your attention to universal problems. Consequently, the world is undoubtedly so small for you that you perhaps believe your intervention can be valuable and effective everywhere. In this way, therefore, your concern and your suggestions cover a much larger and wider, wider field than mine. And this is the end. He says, For my world, Mr. President, is the one to which providence has assigned me and for which it is my duty to work. Its area is much smaller. It comprises my people alone, but I believe I can thus best serve that which is in the hearts of all of us, justice, well-being, progress, and peace for the whole community of mankind. I think that's an accurate statement of Hitler's position there. He's preparing, he's hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. You know, he's preparing to go to war, but it's not necessarily inevitable. But FDR was bent on war. 
FDR was bent on war, and America was controlled by Jewry, and it still is, and that explains Hitler's geopolitical decision-making. So to answer your question, I know this is very long, I think Hitler would have been content with Germany being a second-level second power to the United States, but he was thinking of what is, what is the interests of my people? Like, how are they going to survive in the future? And I think he also recognized that the defeat of Germany, and this goes back to what you were saying about the Suez Canal, the defeat of Germany by Anglo-America, particularly America, or by Bolshevik Russia, would be the defeat of Europe as a whole, Germanic Europe. And that's what we see in the Suez Crisis is Britain and France, who are nominally the winners of World War II, getting getting crushed between uh, they're try, trying Soviets to assert, the, yeah, the yeah, Soviets and the Americans. Yeah, between uh, uh, Kennedy and uh, or, or Eisenhower or, yeah. and uh, and Khrushchev, you know. And uh, so Europe lost World War II, and that's what Hitler was aware of. I'm gonna go back to some of the points that uh, Sims makes in his book that I, I think are underrated. Um, or, or not as, as widely understood as they, they should be. One, uh, he talks about Hitler making political decisions, and we, we touched on this earlier, but I, it was particularly, uh, it struck me, especially the way he talks about Hitler making political decisions even at the very end of the war, even when they made no sense militarily. Uh, or, or very They made sense militarily, but... On a long you, timeline. You, you, have to, you have to like really think about why. Yes. So one of those was like, why did Hitler not withdraw from the Courland pocket? Why did he leave Army Group North in the Baltic? Uh, and, and Sims talks about this a lot. The reason he kept uh, Army Group North in the Baltic is because he needed to, for as long as possible, keep control of the uh, the Baltic Sea and keep control of some of those ports in uh, like what's now Latvia, Lithuania, or Latvia, Estonia in order to uh, train U-boat crews in those in the Baltic Sea and then to use them to cut off um, supply of England and to, to, to cut down on the supplies being delivered to the Allied armies in Europe. Uh, even though that seems suicidal, why wouldn't you want to preserve those you know, hundreds of thousands of troops and, and withdraw them to the core? So he, because Hitler knew that if he did that, not only would those troops be lost, but the whole country would be lost. Yes, yes. Um, there are some other ones too, like at the, even, even when we're getting down to like the Western front and the Eastern front were about to collapse in on each other. Uh, Hitler was making decisions based on the like political long-term, uh, effects of, of what he was doing. Uh, and sort of the culmination of all this was Hitler's suicide. And this is usually portrayed as being nihilistic or as being, um, like Nero selfish yeah, or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like. Well, yeah, I don't want to get into Nero revisionism, but <laughs> yes, yeah, funny story. Did you know Nero, when he was uh, about to die, he had two glasses made out of um, crystal. It's some kind of it was, it's uh, it's quartz crystal, right. like you know quartz crystal, and that you yeah. can carve it into a glass, right? Which is, I mean, it's very even nowadays. This would be very expensive. Yes. he had two of these, and he smashed them lest anybody else drink out of them. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's uh, yeah. Uh, but no, Hitler's. Hitler, uh, Sims talks about this, thought of the, he called it the rune value of buildings, like you know, building yes, lies yes. in runes. Yes. So the rune value of a building is you see a building that's been destroyed, you can point to it and say, look at this building that's been destroyed. Uh, and that, that in a way can motivate people to fight. I mean, you think of uh, the- Well, the rune well, value is, think, is it's, it's, it's that you're building buildings that are, the idea is that they are built to last to the point where you're not even just thinking in terms of, 
how they will be functional while your empire exists, but a thousand years, two thousand years after your thing is no longer even a political entity. Yeah. Uh, there will still be the ruins will be left. And people so, will say, wow, that's awesome. I want to do that. Yes. And so Hitler thought was was thinking of the rune value of his own corpse. Uh, and so he he wanted to, he decided to kill himself to prevent him from falling into the hands of the enemy. Right. And he didn't want to have happened to him what happened to Mussolini, where he'd be treacherously killed and then displayed his corpse displayed in public. Uh, and he, because he wanted the idea of national socialism to live on. Right. Uh, so Hitler gave us his, his final gift. Right. Well, that's, that's a very good point because the, the, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the big claims of, of against Hitler is that he just was irrationally wanted to keep the war going to the very end. And that long after Germany was beaten, he was, was the, no he was like, oh, the, the Germans don't, they don't deserve me. I'll oh, yeah. Well, oh, that's another, that's one of the big ones that comes out of Sim's book is that, is that, uh, <laughs> is that, um, the, the like logical absurdity the, 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 of, the, oh, well, uh, they the, don't, they are, they're not fit. Therefore, they deserve to be destroyed. Well, Albert Speer, Al, that comes from Speer and Speer for decades now, decades and decades. And that's what's good about, Adam Tooze or Brendan Sims is that these guys are not, they are certainly like arrogant British scumbags who, who are in anti Hitler, but I've read some of those books. They're really there, but they are, but they are also rational. Like they're 21st century historians who are, who are not really like they're getting past some of the ridiculous myths that were the just dominated scholarship about mainstream academic scholarship about Hitler and the third Reich during the whole 20th century. And one of the big myths that has always been repeated is this idea that Hitler gave this supposedly the, the Nero order, mm-hmm. and it was and it was that we're going to do a scorched earth policy and poison all the wells and and kill all the livestock and do all this stuff. Like basically, I want to make it so that no one can live in Germany at all. Like no one can survive in Germany at all. And that Speer came to Hitler and and said, "But mein Führer, then." The German people who will be living in the ruins in the aftermath here won't be able to survive. And he's like, fuck them. <laughs> Hitler Hitler's like, they fail to understand my greatness. And if, and if they, if they, uh, if, if they, <laughs> he's like, fuck them. They, they didn't, they didn't, uh, 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 they didn't live up to my greatness. And because they didn't, they, they were beaten in this war, it shows that they are weak and they are not worthy of my greatness. So it's best that they die. That's the rule of struggle. I told Stryker about this and how that always bothered me because it sounded so un Hitler like and how sims finally does away with it and striker said to me yeah he said he was hitler he wasn't richard spencer (laughs) but the thing was well what hitler was thinking was the only way for germany to have a moral rejuvenation is to have an epic like uh downfall well well let me let me let me expand on that the story needed to end like the nibelungen lead where everyone just gets slaughtered but it's not even it's not even that melodramatic it's hit this was based on hitler's reading of clausewitz and of history and he even mentions clausewitz in his last testament and he he what he's saying is so first of all the spear thing is total bullshit and sims actually says it's bullshit he's like actually we don't have anything other than spears word on that like that's it. Like right. we don't have anyone else that saw that or said that or whatever. So we just have Spears' word. So it's probably doubtful that. In other words, it's one of Albert Spears' many, many, many 
filthy, dirty, big lies that he told after the war. So that's bullshit. To get back into polite middle-class right. society. and to not be hanged at Nuremberg. So that is uh, total bullshit, and we can finally put a, that myth away. So, so then why did Hitler fight to the end? Well, first of all, if you look up, uh, a military historian will tell you, if you look up uh, this idea of unconditional surrender, again, this is one of these things in our comic book world after World War II that we that we grew up with myths like uh, not only Star Wars, but stuff like, um, you know, Lord of the Rings with the final assault on Mordor and all that. Okay. Um, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't watch any of this stuff. <laughs> You've heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, right? so I've heard of <laughs> Greg's like, J.R.R. Tolkien, that's what's this, this pop culture trash <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> but uh, it's very much in our collective myth-making, this idea of people fighting the bad guy's final fortress falling and after he goes down. But in reality, the history of wars... We were just talking about this the other day. That is extremely rare, uh, where where one side just fights to the last. Yeah, it's man. like the fall of Constantinople, maybe or something. Yeah, yeah that's it just, a, it just can... doesn't happen in history. Uh, it didn't happen with Napoleon. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen in history. The way wars end is one side admits it's beaten. Uh, it negotiates some sort of surrender, and and that's it. And the demand of unconditional surrender is extremely unusual in war and it comes from uh the american civil war i believe but when even when you read about how that demand was agreed on it wasn't agreed on like fdr showed up at one of these conferences and just plops it on churchill he's like oh yeah we're calling for unconditional surrender against germany and stalin was like oh yeah that's great <laughs> you know <laughs> and churchill was like uh uh, I believe it was Churchill. It was like, uh, you realize that means that like we're going to prolong the war by another like two years if you make that demand, and that now. Yeah, but even with that demand, there were a lot of elements within the German military and government that were hoping that that was still on the table somehow. Right, right. Which and is why they the, did the coup. And, and well, that's the thing. There was that, this false hope. Well, there's people today that even say that like that was like the, the Allies' greatest gift to Goebbels, you know, because Goebbels, now the Germans have this uh, unconditional surrender in, in, in history. It's like saying... It's like saying to someone that, you know, you get in a fight with a guy in a bar and, and the guy's saying, okay, if I beat you... Uh, I get to take over your house and do whatever I want with your wife and your kids. I can sell your kids into slavery. I, I can I can rape your wife and I can I can take every possession that you own. And it's like if you if someone proposes that, that's the equivalent of what it's like saying. Yeah, if, if, you're, if, you're, if, if one guy's like beaten in a fight and he's like mostly mostly out of it, can't really throw yeah. another punch, and you're you come to him with that, you come to him with that. It's like your terms are so extreme. And you're not willing to negotiate. So you have basically told the guy that there's no reason to not fight to the death. But here's the thing. Basically, the Allies told the Germans that uh, already. Like Churchill didn't, or Roosevelt didn't need to say that because the 1918 treaty was, uh, it it was notionally not unconditional surrender. But in effect, it was unconditional surrender because they... The Germans knew looking the, the Germans of the 1930s of the World War II era, like Hitler and then the ones who really understood what had happened in 1918, um, would have laughed at any conditional surrender offer 
because they would have thought, well, they would have known correctly that if we surrender on these terms and say we we get rid of the National Socialist government and uh, Germany just becomes uh, Germany returns to its 1938 borders, whatever, pick your terms, that as soon as that happens, the British and the French and the Americans are just going to surround Germany and cut off its food and keep extracting concessions right. until they get everything that they really want. Right, right. So there, there's no point in even doing a, an entertaining a conditional surrender. But that would have been a point of view that only like radical, right. fanatical only, Nazis would have held. But like only anyone, rational, only rational people would have held that view. Well, but what I mean is like oh, like if 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 to say we you know if the Allies had come to Germany with very reasonable terms like. We we are we are going to uh, you know here are our terms like you lay down your arms we're going to go back to our 1938 borders or whatever or what, you know whatever terms they could have come to um, you it would it would have caused a fissure it would have, it it would have caused a huge fissure and it would be like the Nazi diehards that want to keep fighting versus everyone else who would have been like hey bro it's over like let's 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 do it yeah you know and. What unconditional surrender from a military perspective, it prolonged the war. Again, if you're FDR or Stalin and you're like, oh, yeah, more peasants will die you know, on my side. A couple hundred thousand more of my own people pushed into the war. Who cares? You know, like what's what's you know, that's not going to affect me. Not my problem. Uh, it really uh, was a was a horrific, horrific decision to do. And in, in the context of that. Fighting to the last man, or at least fighting to the end, the way the the Hitler did and the Germans, makes total sense from a practical standpoint. Because uh, you know, there's always one of the big things that Hitler was hoping for was a black swan event, right? Uh, uh, you know, either a major breakthrough with technology, which ironically it was the Allies that were that were developing the the nuclear weapon and were getting ready to use it, but also a breakdown between the allies. And this is another one of those things that it seems like, oh, how foolish of Hitler to hope for this. Well, wow. you say that, but but immediately, immediately when the war was over, the US and the Soviet Union start squaring off. I mean, they were squaring off before it was even done, right. before it was even finished. And you also had the same thing uh, with the Battle of the Bulge. Hitler was trying to drive a wedge between the, Ang the English and the Americans. And what what historians have talked about today is that the, between the generals on the, the two sides, what was it, Montgomery and, uh, and Eisenhower, there were incredible tensions that the Battle of the Bulge or the, the, the Ardennes Offensive, I should say, the Ardennes Offensive, exposed those tensions. And had they reached Antwerp, it could have caused a like catastrophic breakdown in the in the Allies yeah, in, in the, their in, relationship. In their, their, and also in their like just their logistical system right, and everything. Right. So 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 the idea was Hitler's basic idea was if we stop fighting, it's all lost. If we keep fighting, even if we're down to one percent chance of a turnaround that's better than nothing. And he was looking at the Seven Years' War a lot. With, right, with right. That was his yeah. big inspiration. Yes, was the Seven Years' War and the death of of his big, uh, Frederick the Great's big rival at the time. I forget who it was. Was it the Queen of Russia, I think, maybe? Or, or Mar Maria Theresa, was it? Maria Theresa, I think, died. Roosevelt died, of course, in April 1939 or 1945, a few weeks before Hitler, and and they they were hoping that that would create, a, a, you know, that was an opportunity. But to get back to Hitler's suicide... The 
the longer view here that he was taking. So in other words, I don't agree with with Sims's characterization that Hitler's like, oh, well, yeah, but if we all like fight to the death and then I kill myself in the ruins, it'll be really dramatic and it'll inspire. I don't think Hitler, he makes it like Hitler I don't was know, I like- feel, I feel inspired. I, I do too. <laughs> I, I, I don't think, with everything with Hitler, uh, there's this, um, there's like this iron logical pragmatism right alongside this like super, super intense idealism and that the, the two coexist. So I don't think Hitler, any of his decisions were just like based on dreams and like, okay, I'm going to like the operas that I used to watch as a kid. I'm going to stage this big dramatic, like final death where everything collapses in flames and I'm like the big fallen hero, you know, Rienzi. Uh, but I also think that he was aware of what Clausewitz said, which is basically that a people can any a people can come back from a lost war if their honor is intact, if their yeah, pride is intact. Right. But if a people surrender their honor, they will lose their will to live. And this goes back to Hitler's second book, because he makes a claim in that. It's very interesting. Right in the first chapter or the second chapter, he says, no people has ever been destroyed on a battlefield. Like a, a whole people doesn't go extinct in a war. He says, but peoples have gone extinct because of the consequences of lost wars. So, and which is literally happening, unfortunately, right now to the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians, really. Well, and, and actually all of Europe. All of Europe, yeah. And, and America too, oddly. Yeah, yeah. But he's saying that He's saying that if Germany stops, you know, and, and Hitler also says this, there's quotes like this where he says, you know, the old policy of Germany was to stop 10 minutes to midnight. And in principle, I, I only ever stop 10 minutes after midnight. Like, like I don't stop till after the thing is, but yeah, there was a, a, it wasn't just like romantic, you know, narcissism. But there was an awareness of the political significance that World War II is a political fight and that if the Germans are to have a long-term future, he has to set the example, the Wehrmacht has to set the example, the SS has to set the example, the Hitler Youth have to set the example that they fought a heroic, glorious fight to the end and that they never said uncle and and treacherously pulled a uh like for instance the kaiser in world war one right where hitler arranges even if it had been possible you know in other words it was totally impossible with the allies they were going to execute hitler and everyone around him but if it had been possible for him to take retirement in switzerland or exile to an island like right. napoleon yeah he would not have taken it because he was cognizant of this historical process so i think again sims is characterizing it a little bit like oh hitler was it wasn't just you know i'm gonna fight to the death because uh, it was like he was orchestrating this drama you know that would inspire people um i think that there was uh it's partially true but i think it's it's also there was the military again with hitler there's the military strategic calculation that They've demanded unconditional surrender. We have no reason not to fight to the end. And if we fight to the end, there a gap might open up that we could slip through. And I'll say one last thing about that is that people say that Hitler uh, knew the war was lost in 1942, Stalingrad, or the war was lost in 1943, the war was lost. Hitler himself did not 
believe, I don't think that the war was lost until about a day before he killed himself. Like, yeah, you know, it was they, like talk, maybe two days. Sims talks about in, I think it was like uh, early 1944, he talks about what Hitler's strategic plan for the year was. Yes. And it was pretty much, uh, it was like the war is winnable and here's the things we need to do. Yes. Uh, and and like the plan actually made sense. Yes. Uh, it, it, given Germany's resources, given uh, what it was facing, uh, the plan was basically to up U-boat production as much as possible and uh, to to sustain Allied attacks from the air as much as possible and just uh, minimize Allied uh, destruction of German industry, uh, to hold the Russians in the east, not lose huge formations, just kind of like slowly trade time for space in the east. Yes. And, um, and what was the other thing? In... Uh, air war, sea war, land war... And oh, to uh, d- he had to he he knew they had to absolutely destroy uh, an Allied landing in Normandy. Right. Yeah, and that's that's where the emphasis on and that surprised the Anglo Americans was the uh, the ferociousness in the in the West. Because uh, like we, even even after Normandy, even if you didn't crush it on the beach, or even if you didn't, uh, and there's, there's, that's a whole another thing we could talk about. I mean, I, I remember reading in, uh, I was reading a few months ago, uh, one of Raymer's books, he talks about, uh, all the things that went wrong during the D-Day operation that should not, that like are inexplicable other than, uh, by, uh, resort to looking at traitors right. and just, it's, it's beyond incompetence. It's, it's treason the way the units are moved around and supplies are distributed, that sort of thing. Uh, but even even if you have a landing at Normandy, Hitler is thinking, well, we can still cut off their supplies with U-boats and and, right. and, and make it such, such that they cannot sustain their forces in uh, France and that they either are those troops are lost to us and we take them as, as prisoners or that the allies simply have to withdraw or come to an, uh, an agreement with us. And that's the funny thing about, too, saying the irrationality of Hitler's project. Uh, the irrationality was... I mean, Stalin, I, I guess you could say, was being very rational. But FDR, I mean, FDR was rational from this point of view of America as like a Jewish financial world empire. His decisions make sense according to that. Churchill's decisions are not rational. Like his, his, his single-minded focus on Germany, on destroying Germany was not rational in the in the interests of his own political career in the interests of of Europe in the interests of the British Empire because we know of Churchill that he wanted to preserve the British Empire that he believed in the empire and uh, and France even even less so uh, so it's like if you're going to talk to speak to the irrationality of positions taken in the war you could say that's more on them than it is on on Hitler or any of the Axis powers and i found this this thing in the in his second book he says that he says that if if however politics is history in the making and history itself is the presentation of the struggle of men and nations for self-preservation and continuance then politics is in truth the execution of a nation's struggle for existence and then he says if you look at this that this is what politics is he says, it's necessary to keep this clearly in view because with this, the two concepts, policies of peace or war, immediately sink into nothingness. Since the stake over which politics wrestles is always life itself, the result of failure or success will likewise be the same, 
regardless of the means with which politics attempts to carry out the struggle for the preservation of the life of a people. So again, Clausewitz, and he says, a peace policy that fails leads just as directly to the destruction of a people, that is to the extinction of its substance of flesh and blood as a war policy that miscarries. And he says that in the one case, just as in the other, the plundering of the prerequisites of life is the cause of a dying out of a people. For nations have not become extinct on battlefields. Lost battles, rather, have deprived them of the means for the preservation of life, or better expressed, have led to such a deprivation, or were not able to prevent it. And he says, in, indeed, the losses which arise directly from a war are in no way proportionate to the losses deriving from a people's bad and unhealthy life as such. Silent hunger and evil vices in ten years kills more people than war could finish off in a thousand years. Oh, America knows that now. Oh, yeah. And then he says, uh, the, the, the cruelest war, however, is precisely the one that which appears to be the most peaceful to present-day humanity, namely the peaceful economic war. Blockade. Uh, uh, opioids. <laughs> yeah, opioids. Yeah, and, and then he says that... He says that uh, Immigration. In its ultimate consequences, this very war, the economic war, leads to sacrifices in contrast to which even those of the war, world war shrink to nothing. For this war affects not only the living, but grips above all those who are about to be born. Whereas war kills at most kills off a fragment of the present, economic warfare murders the future. And then he says that, you know, that, so the point he's making there is that, uh, that, that what Hitler looks at as the ultimate objective of, of foreign policy, of politics, and of, of just the whole thing is is the life of a people. He even says at the end of this of this chapter, he says that the um, politics must fight about the life of a people and for this life. Moreover, it must always choose the weapons of its struggle so that life in the highest sense of the word is served. For one does not make politics in order to be able to die. Rather, one may only at times call upon men to die so that a nation can live. The aim is the preservation of life and not heroic death or even cowardly resignation. And so to Hitler, the ultimate losing is the destruction of a people. That is to the extinction of its substance of flesh and blood. So that's the that's like the worst thing to Hitler is the destruction of the substance of flesh and blood of a people. Well, that's what we have right now in the West. I mean, that's what's being done to white America right now. It's it's nibbling on the edges. People are dropping. It's what's happening in Europe. And it is happening as a result of the loss of World War II. But again, this fits into what the problem is with America ruled by the Jews and then having this economic war and blockade and, and Europe being encircled. Hitler's looking at that. That makes sense then why he would risk war you know, with these great powers, why he would risk sending, you know, all these thousands and thousands of guys into a war. It's because right. he's looking at this long-term thing. So to get back to his death, he's looking at that also as a long-term thing. If Germany gives up, and I, I'm the leader, so I set the example, but if we surrender and lay down our arms and say, you've beaten us and we'll, we'll take whatever terms you're offering, then Germany was basically will lose its heroic example that could inspire it in the future to fight back. And that's also where the Holocaust comes into it, because the Holocaust, the purpose of the Holocaust is to dishonor the most heroic, glorious fight in history. So you have this fight that 
Hitler says that it should be inspirational and, and an example to like all white men everywhere. To all men everywhere, to everyone everywhere in the world. Yeah, actually, it's that's like, true. No, like, really. I mean, there's <laughs> Japanese, a lot of, the Arabs, there's a Indians. lot of people who look to Hitler for their example. I mean, Duterte was saying in the Philippines he wants to be like Hitler and deal with the drug dealers the way you know they dealt with the Jews. It's 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 when you set that kind of historic example, and Hitler says it in his final testament. He says this will one day go down as the most glorious struggle that any nation ever waged for its existence. Uh there's no way that you can look at the achievements of the Wehrmacht and the SS and the, the, the Luftwaffe and, and of Germany's allies and not say that that is so. That, that even, the, even the heroism of the First World War pales in comparison to what, what they achieved in terms of setting a heroic example in World War II. So there a seed is being planted, as Hitler says in his testament, for the total rebirth of National Socialism and for the total... Some new epic where this Europe comes back on the scene stronger and powerful than ever, more powerful than ever, the phoenix rising from the Right, that, that's the only model possible, not some gay European Union, like, Clergy, right. uh, zombie Europe. So how do you stop that from happening? You, you, you stain them with a guilt that is worse than anything in the history of the world, a, a mass, an organized industrial mass murder of women and children on a scale that has never been done. So you it's impossible to make people who are who are gassing millions of women and children uh, in, in in industrial gas chambers. It's impossible to reconcile that with this like heroic knights fighting for their homeland. And that's really what that stain of guilt is designed to do and why that myth is so it's, it's, crucial. I mean, it's what they did to Germany after World War One too. I mean, yes. they, they didn't have a Holocaust myth quite, but they had... There was the whole question of war guilt and, and blaming Germany for starting yes. the war in the first place. Yes. And they found that wasn't as effective as a myth. Right. Uh, so they had to come up with the Holocaust. Uh, the one... I, I wanted to finish out with... Uh, one other aspect of this whole book that I found myself particularly interesting, um, and that's Hitler's and, and Germany's policy regarding the Middle East, <laughs> because it is called Hitler, a global biography, and it is truly a global biography. Hitler's uh, political uh, thinking encompassed the whole world, and how could we use everything in the world to fight uh, Jewish power? Right. Um so this is from the Sims book. This is page uh, 351 talking about uh, German propaganda. Uh, Hitler attached so much importance to this work that he compared the possible destruction of the propaganda machine to loss of certain parts of the Wehrmacht. Central to this endeavor was the enlightenment of the outside world about the nefarious nature of international Jewry, to which end anti-Semitic uh, to which end the anti-Semitic world service was translated into eight languages. At the same time, and at Hitler's express request, Nazi broadcasts in Arabic targeted alleged British imperial atrocities in Palestine in September of 1939. Right. Uh, and that, that, that does, and there's another quote too in here about, about that, but um, that does go along with, with Hitler's policy. Uh, something I remember from reading in uh, David Irving's book, um, Hitler's war was about how Germany actually made efforts to uh, support Iraq uh, because Iraq was a British uh, protectorate. The uh, Iraqi 
there was an, a faction within the Iraqi army that took over um, in Baghdad in 1941 or 42. Saddam Hussein's uncle was one of the uh, leaders of that. Oh, and really? Who was, who was his, one of his like lifelong heroes. So it was Abdul Rashid, I think was yes. the, the colonel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that was the, the or, guy yeah, that, that was over. the guy yeah. that, right, yeah. And Germany sent uh, Luftwaffe pilots and planes. Uh, they just, they, they crossed out the, the, uh, the black cross and put on like a, I don't know, a something, I think they put on the Iraqi Eagle or something to make it, <laughs> to make it look like they're Iraqis. But, uh, they, this like revolt in Iraq, uh, actually pushed the British out of Iraq for a few months and the British had to invade Iraq just like they did in, in, uh, in uh, world war one. And just like they did between the wars. Uh, so, you know, Hitler was thinking about like the whole world and how he could use every element uh, of the world. I mean, it sort of goes back to what uh, the Germans were doing in World War One, trying to uh, incite a jihad against uh, against right. the Allies. Right. Uh, yeah. There was, you know, people talk about that as being a half baked, like crazy plan, but it it it, it did work a little bit. Well, I mean, it's yeah. what uh, Lawrence of Arabia was doing against the Turks. You know, yeah. in, in his so so. You know, why shouldn't the Germans have done their their version of it? Uh, yeah, on that, it's interesting because Emily and I dealt with this when we did the modern politics on Palestine because I wanted to clarify Hitler's position on this from what I've understood. Uh, you know, in Mein Kampf, he, he makes it clear that he's not interested in, um, like, taking the NSDAP and aligning them with other freedom movements right, from around right. the world. He says, and he says for several reasons, he says, one, because just because I, I bump into some Arab or Indian wandering through Germany who's like a representative of it, he's like, they're not a representative, it's just some student or something, and they and they don't, they can't conclude any treaties and they can't do anything, so what's the point? <clears throat> and this is just playing into, he says, this is playing into the fantasy that, some of our German nationalists have that other peoples will be willing to fight our battles for us. Right. And we see this with white nationalism today. There's yeah. the, always the, there's always been the trend of, Oh, well, the black nationalists, they'll come to save us or these people or these people or these people. And Hitler was very much a, we can only count on ourselves ever, ever, right. ever. But you, but you have to, you have to like struck a balance where you're, you you do have a foreign policy yes. regarding these other groups. Well, that's what I was getting. You're to not say, so. you're not you're not like okay. Well, we're going to invite them into our ranks or something, or we're going to well, like. Well, then he he actually goes a step further in Mein Kampf, and this is Hitler at his most like uh, uh, white racialist, um, where he says, as a racial man, he says, I would rather see the British in control of India uh, because they're the same race as we are, and why not? Uh, he actually says that. Um, so it's important to not, um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't want Indian independence. It's yeah. It's important to, to not, to not suggest here that Hitler was just like ready to, because you can, you can almost get into a danger. You can show, I mean, the amazing things where the third Reich was working with non-white powers all over yeah, the yeah. world and people, and, and you can almost take it too far. And, we're, and, we're, and a lot of Nazis did take it too far. A lot of them did, yeah. But you can <laughs> like, this is hilarious. Well, they we're became destroy, very embittered. We'll, we'll raise our brown armies and destroy <laughs> yes, England. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, which you know, after six years of war, I mean, they were pretty embittered. But but it, it's 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 important not to take it too far because what can happen is you could get to the point, and there are certain elements that that are um, anti-Nazi elements within white nationalism, the broader constellation of white nationalism that don't want to see any kind of Hitlerism come back. 
uh, and usually it's because they're either crypto Jews or, or are, are, are serving or, some or, kind of Jewish or interest. Or worse, they're Republicans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so in other words, gay crypto Jews. But, uh, <laughs> but, but there's, there's an element there that want to say that, well, well, what then was Hitler except for a German chauvinist who launched a war against fellow white people for the benefit of, of all these brown people who are now taking over Britain and that sort of thing? I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think Hitler was first and foremost a racial man, but it's again the pragmatic. He, he wanted of white. His he wanted to a, a white control of basically European control of of the world system. It was just he didn't want Germany to be annihilated and for that to just be a Anglo Jewish uh, power. And Hitler certainly, it's it's again the only consistent thing with Hitler that is absolutely unchanging is what he says in his political testament, which is love and loyalty to my people. So he is the flesh and blood substance of the German folk and, and Germany is the one consistent thing that is totally, he is not willing to, I mean, all his decisions are going to be made based on what's good for that entity. So, so you mean he wouldn't be like in favor of race mixing if he thought that race mixing could like annihilate world Jewry? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, wasn't yeah. willing to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 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 <laughs> some so, absurd thing like but, that. But yeah. so, so he's willing to acknowledge the rights, for instance, of the Palestinians, and in, you know, he he is certainly not interested in Germany going out and and dominating like the Middle East or dominating uh, India or whatever. But he's not willing to fight Britain over it. You know, that's right. that's the difference. It's like Hitler's not going to war to liberate the Indians against the British. And he's not going to, but he's, he also is not going to like, he, he, he's not, he doesn't mind if the British are in control of India, but at the same time, he's willing to recognize the rights of other peoples and to talk about, uh, especially them. if the British are screwing with Germany and trying to annihilate Right. It. And then it becomes, now, then it's, now, well, then now, it's like, now, yeah, maybe now, now we'll talk to the Yes, Indians. exactly. And so, so you have this thing where by World War II, the Germans are much more willing to, uh, form like the free india legion uh what's his name uh bose bose yes yeah. and and then and and then uh uh the grand mufti in jerusalem what's funny about him the anecdote that i, I told this on modern politics is that there was an irgun the one of the irgun leaders so for anybody who doesn't know the irgun were this israeli terrorist group that uh, bombed the King David Hotel and yeah, killed yeah. a lot of British civilians and others. Horribly ruthless, evil bunch of terrorists. Really, in many ways, set the standard for modern-day terrorism, like bombing markets and civilians. One of their top leaders during World War II worked with British Secret Service. Prior to this, they had been enemies of the British, you know, because right. the British were in Palestine. But they recognize that the big enemy is Germany because Germany is the number one enemy of the Jews in the whole world. So we got to make peace with the British for now while they're at war with Germany. And he was like, I don't know if he was trained by, but he was basically worked out a scheme with the British Secret Service to assassinate the Grand Mufti uh, uh, Amin al-Husseini, yeah. who was the spiritual leader of the Palestinians and had fought several uprisings against the British and was working with the Germans at the time. And he was sent on a mission to assassinate Amin al-Husseini. And the story is that his 
group of cars was bombed by Luftwaffe pilots and he was killed. So they killed this like leader of the Irgun. The Luftwaffe bombed their, their car or something uh, when he was a- on a mission with the British, this Israeli terrorist, the Zionist <laughs> terrorist, to assassinate the Palestinian leader. Then the Luftwaffe bombed him. But yeah, the, the point I'm making is with, with Hitler's foreign policy there. So there's the two positions. It's like, okay, so in other words, on the one extreme, you have Hitler as not even pro-white. Hitler as German chauvinist right. willing to work with any brown people to to for the sake of the Germans beating the English. And on the other extreme, you have Hitler, the extreme opportunist, the unscrupulous bastard who is willing to use Arab independence, use Indian independence for whatever achieves his goals. And he's totally... I think both views are somewhat right and somewhat wrong. I think on the one hand... Uh, Hitler genuinely acknowledged these people's rights and and viewed them as human beings and talked to them. And and I I think in many ways Hitler was less racist towards non-whites than uh, FDR, certainly, or Churchill. Uh, But at the same time, the thing, the pivot that his whole foreign policy depends on is Germany and what's good for Germany. So he's not going to sacrifice Germany for the sake of helping the Arabs, but at the same time, he's not going to be like, he's not going to sacrifice Germany for the sake of helping the British keep the Arabs down. And if the British, if the Arabs are being cool and are willing to work with Germans and the British are not, he's going to throw it all behind the Arabs, which he did. And that's why a lot of, yeah, as as you know, Greg, better than I do, a lot of uh, people in Middle East and North Africa still admire Hitler very, very much and uh, and the Nazis and, and view them as like, while they were being put down by the French, for instance, the Wehrmacht marches through Paris, marches through the Arch de Triomphe. And, and or when, in, uh, well, this is uh, perhaps not in line with Hitler's foreign policy thinking, but I know uh, Otto Ernst Raymer, the guy that crushed the July 20th plot after the war, he uh, perhaps out of bitterness, uh, helped to f- uh, fund and send arms to the Algerian rebels against France. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Perhaps out of spite, I don't know. Maybe, but, but you know, what was France's government, what was France's policy at that time? I, I think that uh, all this is important because it gives us a sense of how we should view our own struggle. In other words, if Hitler's right, and politics really is about the life of a flesh and blood substance of people. If that's really what, why you make politics, why you make foreign policy. And as Americans, we look at our, you know, 190, 200 million white people, and how we view Middle Easterners or, you know, Russians or other people in the world. How we view non-whites here in the United States. I think that that's I think that's a strong basis on which to view it and I think you cannot be you have to kind of be like Hitler and not be ideologically rigid about who you're aligning with or why it, it except for the thing of what's good for your people in the long run and that's a fair basis because you can do that on the basis of that other peoples are going to be doing the same thing you right. know I so mean, you, other peoples don't seem to have this problem like they, they, see, they see, like the blacks, Arabs, uh, Chinese, they yes. seem to be able, they get this intrinsically and they're able yes. to act politically in their own interest without being like, oh, I hate white people all the time. Yes. It's like, I'll hate white people when I need to hate white people. You know, like they, yes. they get yes. it. Yes. yes. And I don't understand yes. what it is about white people that you have to like exhaustively white beat, people beat this into their heads. 
Yes. Uh, when it is necessary to ally with somebody or to treat them decently or when it is, is time to be ruthlessly uh, inimical to them. Right. Right. Yeah. That's uh, and that's the big lesson I think you can take away from this. Uh, Sims. Uh, I like the fact that he I like the fact, though, that he is looking at this from a that it's a political biography, that he's looking at Hitler's political ideas and taking them seriously that he is also reappraising Hitler's relationship to the U.S. I mean, one thing we were talking about before we started recording is that as an American, you can kind of um, take some comfort in the fact, because I think as Americans, you know, as white Americans, I mean, if Greg, if you're anything like me, you grow up in this country and you're sort of like, the stars and stripes are gay, you know, this stuff is stupid, like, how can I possibly feel pride in like G.I. Joe going over and bombing Europe or fighting, you know, bombing Vietnamese rice patties for that matter. It's like our our history lacks glory and, and uh, greatness and certainly cultural greatness. We have jazz and Hollywood and blacks and, and it's like you, you can kind of, when you study the Third Reich and the Nazis, you can kind of, and then you study like you were big into Roman history when you were younger. Yeah, you, you study, can kind you study of, Roman history. It's it's really hard to care about. Yeah, America. you can kind of like view Americans as, oh man, we're just like this the 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 stupid, dumb, like uncultured, unheroic, unglorious, and you can kind of lose. You don't. It's hard to take same, the same pride. You're idealizing like Germany, the German Reich, or the Roman Empire, or whatever, and you're saying, oh man, we Americans, we just suck. Um, the thing to do, though, is to recognize that Hitler didn't view it that way. Like, if Hitler was an American, he would be like, I am a member of a great people of pioneers and conquerors. Well, yeah, no, he, he would have said that, continent. but he, he also, he, like the founding fathers, would have been like, yeah, but we need to look at European culture because yes. we're, oh, really absolutely. La- we're really lacking it here. Well, he would have viewed, and, and this is my view of it also, is that is that I, uh, you know, after a certain point there, I, I came to realize that I mean, German history is my history. I mean, it's your history. I mean, our 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 ancestors, if you're German, if you're part German, our ancestors lived through most of the big events of German history, um, of European history. And if you're Italian, you know, your ancestors were there in Rome during the Roman Empire. You have that blood in you. If you are French, if you're East European, you don't have to be German necessarily, but European history, and particularly like the common experiences of all Europeans, such as the Black Plague, you know, or or the, or the, the religious the Crusades, wars, the Crusades, or, yeah. you know, the Mongol invasion, or the the, the, the Huns, and the Rome and the collective thing. And there's the Roman been con- constant back and forth between the various European peoples. I mean, right. Know, the- but I mean, American history. You know, this. Uh, I had this thought a long time ago because uh, my dad. You know, he he grew up on, in the 50s and 60s, so he loves cowboys and Indians. You know, and I grew up in the 80s, so I like sword and sorcery because that's what I was raised on. But at a certain point, I was thinking about it, and I remember thinking, well, wait a minute. Which is more authentically American, you know, like knights in armor? Because I always love castles. I love the medieval period. I mean, you were into Roman history. I always loved, and partially it is fantasy stuff, but partially it's just real history. I always collected books on knights and castles, and I love the medieval era. And, you know, the suits of armor and all that. And I remember thinking at one point, 
is it more authentically American to identify more with cowboys and Indians than it is with knights and castles? And I had this thought one time that I've never forgotten. I thought, wait a minute, none of my people were cowboys. None of my ancestors were cowboys. But for sure, my ancestors, if they weren't actually knights, they saw knights, they were around knights, they were in around and those that, that's in the, the castles. Com- that's, that's common to all Americans. All Americans. So really what's interesting is that when American history or American culture artificially cuts off at the 1770s and says, this is when your history began. Well, first of all, most of us, most white Americans, our ancestors weren't here in the 1770s. That's a tiny group of Anglos that, that actually can trace their heritage back and were here and were, their whole family was back here at that time. Uh, the vast, probably, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but probably the vast bulk of Americans, they immigrated, their ancestors emigrated to the United States after the original British colony. I mean, even during the time right. of the Civil War, American, look at the faces on the generals in the Civil War. It's one group of Anglo-Saxons versus the other group of Anglo-Saxons. That's what it is. It's an Anglo-Saxon Civil War. So, well, I mean... You, you did have all those units of like Germans and Irish. You did, and, but they yeah. were right off the boat. They were right off the boat. I mean, they were literally like they didn't speak English. They were here. I mean, uh, I always talk about that hilarious scene in uh, uh, Scorsese's film Gangs of New York where they show the Irish coming off the boat and they're like, welcome to America. Here's your union uniform. <laughs> you know, <they're> like, <laughs> Robert E. Lee over there. We need cannon fodder, you know, like, welcome, my new American. Here, get, go over there and charge that, that those Confederate guns. Uh, but my point is just that, um, yeah, the history of knights and of castles and of Romans and of all this is our, as whites, it's our history, it's American history, as much as cowboys and Indians. In fact, kind of more so, because unless you're from the West, the Western U.S., and your people, I mean, if, you, if if that's your people, you should be proud of it, you know? But unless your people are your Texans or something, for most of us, that's a part of our national experience, but it's not actually our direct ancestors. It's not our actual direct history. So, you know, the, again, the Hitlerian view of politics of a flesh and blood substance of a people, our history isn't 1776. It doesn't start there. Our history is this whole thing. And unlike any European people, as Americans, we can kind of uh, claim the whole thing as our collective heritage and right. our co- and our collective like uh, birthright in a way, our legacy. Um, and yeah, I mean, take if inspiration we, if we, from that. If we if we colonized Mars or something today in 200 years, would we would we our ancestors on Mars say, "Well, history began in 2022." Yeah, we're we, Martians. We we're, not say, we're not Earth. We're Martians. Yeah. We're not. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not humans. <laughs> we're Martians. You know, like you don't you don't become. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, if you if humans go to Mars and form a Mars colony, they don't stop being human. They're humans from Earth who happen to be living on Mars. You know, it's funny. There's a there's a great quote by. Uh, uh, Malcolm X actually, uh, while we're while we're admiring the the nationalists of other peoples, <laughs> where he he says this this great quote, and he's just giving a pro nationalism speech, and he says, "We're not Americans." He says, "We're Africans that happen to be living in America." <laughs> and he says, "He says that we didn't land on our ancestors weren't the pilgrims." <laughs> he says, "We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. The rock landed on us." <laughs> yeah. well, actually, the one one uh, point I want to bring up with that is uh, the other kind of way to take all of this is to just 
to view politics as nationalism and to say, okay, well, nationalism is what we want. Therefore, all peoples should have nationalism and we will support any people having nationalism. And that's distinct from the from the way Hitler dealt with like outside groups. That's it's distinct from that. The nationalism for all position is not doing politics. I mean, that's akin to basically it's like saying you're a libertarian. Uh, I, we, we we as a libertarian, you ignore uh, you simply discount uh, violence as a tool of, of politics. And you say, well, uh, we're libertarians. People should just get along. And then economic uh, e- economics would allow if we study economics and we ignore violence, then we will have a perfect political system. It's absurd. It's the same way with like na- nationalism for all as a political position. Right. You're you can only assure nationalism for other peoples if you wanted to by being strong yourself and being able to protect right. them. Uh, so and and that's also and that, that's directly uh, not what what Hitler wanted. He did not want nationalism for all. Uh, and that that's just, just is a position that doesn't even make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Well, it's sort of like you know, Hitler, like in the in the um, in Eastern Europe, he was fine with fostering national groups uh, as long as they were their their interests were aligned with Germany's interests. Right, right. You can't, uh, yeah, you can't do something that's not. It, it's like if you it's have like a Americans family. have this problem. So I guess what I'm trying to say is Americans have this thing where we. Maybe it's not just Americans. Maybe it's British and, and Europeans too have this like thing where everything is interpreted. Everything in politics is interpreted through these like nationalist catchphrases, right? Uh, and it's not. People have a very difficult time breaking it down to the interests and the like flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, and yeah, and and that's uh, it, it's sort of like the thing with no more brother wars because I've been thinking about that a lot since the war with Ukraine started, and and I was, I'm like. It's a good idea, but in reality, uh, I, I think that you can't have that as an absolute. And and what I go back to is, and that's not to say you know Russia is totally justified in everything that it's doing, but but it depends on the circumstances. I, I, what I what I go back to when I think of no more brother wars and the idea of it is the meme that's always used is the Christmas thing or the or yeah, the, right. the, the picture of the British and the German. Uh, the one lighting the other yeah. one's cigarette. I kind of don't really agree with that from the point of every time I see that meme, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Uh, the German guy is not in London. He's not in he's not in Scotland. He's not in in the British Isles. The British guy is on European mainland central European soil and is and is going to war against Germany. Britain declared war on Germany in World War One. Germany did not declare war on Britain. And really, of all the, uh, you and I were talking about this, of, of the whole chain of alliances that kicked in with the uh, Austria, the Habsburg, the dual monarchy going to war against Serbia, Britain is the only one that it doesn't really make sense why they have to get involved. Like, if, if, you're, if you're Russia, you're getting involved for pan-Slavic reasons. If you're France, you're getting involved because of, of the Franco-Prussian yeah. war, and then you and Russia have this thing. But Britain, why is Britain siding with Germany, or siding with France and Russia against Germany? I mean, we know why, you know, the yeah, various right. reasons. But the point I'm making is that I think Germany was totally justified in fighting and killing British troops who were in, you know— coming at the Somme, for instance. I mean, I wouldn't say when you have, and, and the Somme is horrible. I mean, it's terrible what happened to all these British boys, and they were probably, a lot of them, really fine, sensitive men. And it's a an, an mass slaughter. It's evil what happened at the Somme, the first day of the Somme. But, I mean, if I'm a German there, 
sitting behind my machine gun and after this two-week bombardment or whatever it was, and now all these young, fine Kitchener's boys are storming over the wire and are coming at me, I'm not going to be like no more Brothers Wars. Yeah, or killing about, a or white guy is immoral. In, think about this in modern terms. I mean, if we had a uh, some kind of uh, civil war or split or some sort of um, some kind of political split resulting in a, in a war in the West, uh, and it's us versus people who are still defending the the rump uh, state of Jewish power. It's like, sorry, but we're gonna fight, right? And even if even if there are white guys coming at us, like who are fighting for Zog, like, well, nationalists <laughs> might even disagree on the on the proper position. And this is another thing that if you if you again, this is where Greg the the, the difference between a juvenile comic book understanding of world politics and of the forces at work and of history versus an actual adult view of it. Uh, you realize, like, for instance, we know that over Austria and over the Anschluss that fascist Italy almost went to war with Nazi Germany, that they could have conceivably gone to war. It's not outside the realm of possibility. Right. They were both two very proud, very strong militaristic states getting their shit together after the Depression and everything. And they're two powers that historically, not only in World War I, where Italy and Germany fought. I mean, let's face it. Hitler and Mussolini were on opposite sides in World War I. Mussolini was fighting Germans and killing Germans right. and vice versa. They were trying to kill him. So you have that experience, but then you go back to the whole medieval experience of the, the rivalry between Italy and Germany and the problems with Italy and Germany and the popes and the, and the Reformation and all the rest of it and the religious wars. So it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that Mussolini and Hitler could have gone to war against each other. And, and while that would have been tragic... It's just, it's one of these things that it's not like there's just no reason why that wouldn't have happened and made sense for it to happen. I'm glad, I'm certainly glad it didn't. But it's important that we understand what actually... Yeah, when, when you say no more Brothers Wars, what you mean is we're not going to, as white men, go fight other white men on behalf of, of Jews. Of Jews, yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. That's it. That's what it comes down to. It's it's not... You're not taking this simplistic view that, like, oh, killing brown people is okay, but killing another white man is... Yeah, no more Brothers Wars means if you find yourself on Zog's side, you should drop your weapon and desert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Exactly. So, and that's, and that also shapes and informs then when you view, like, you know, I, I've been studying Napoleonic history or you, you know, you study Roman history. And, and I think it's a very childish thing when, when white nationalists are like, well, I'm not interested in that because, you know, Caesar and Gaul, that's just, uh, that's just brothers. It's just white men killing white men. And that's, that's not, there's nothing interesting or historically useful about that or, or whatever. It's like, in these tussles is how we shaped our whole civilization, how we shaped our whole culture. And it's a part of who we are. It's a part of what we are. That's the other thing is, is that I think it's important to view war as part of a larger historical process, which is what Hitler does there, um, to not view, to, 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 to sort of detach war as just this terrible worst case scenario thing that happens once in a while. But, um, uh, 
everything else is good. War is the ultimate evil. Well, Hitler's saying the peaceful economic war is the most cruel war of all, and it's how this country wages its wars. It's what, you know, Madeleine Albright just died. It's what she was doing to Iraq. It was it was economic war against Iraqi children, and she was thought that was okay. So, uh, yeah, that, that, you're not glorifying war, and you're not saying, oh, yeah, well, war-like nations, that's great. We should just always be preparing for war and going to war. But it's also saying war is not the ultimate evil, and there are some reasons why you sometimes have to go to war, even against other white men, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, well, um, that's a good place to wrap up. So uh, thank you very much, Warren. And This was fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. No, we did. We, we, we barely scratched yeah, the yeah. surface. We could do like a 30-podcast like a, like a series on just the Sims book. But yeah, people should read it. Uh, it's excellent, and uh, thanks for having me on, Greg. All right. Bye.